All right, well, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to wrap up this chapter today. 2 Corinthians 7. Um, we're going to be in 11 through 16. Logan just read those verses for us. I'll read them one more time and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. It says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort we rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus true proved to be truth. His affliction abounds all the more toward you. His affection, not his affliction, his affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice in everything. I have confidence in you. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are so good. You are way too good to us. We don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your grace. Uh, but we thank you for it. Thank you that you have such compassion for us, that you are so tender and merciful toward us, even when we are so defiant and rebellious toward you. And God, as we open up your word, I pray that you would speak to us. I plead your help as I preach your word that I wouldn't speak anything that is in error, that is uh, not correct, but that only truth would come forth from this pulpit and that you would be honored in uh, our hearts. We would set you apart as Lord in our mind. And we would uh, worship you and, and love you. We would be drawn closer to you through your, the words of your text. God, we love you and praise you. Amen. All right, well, I'm not sure how many of you guys are sports fans, but... Even if you're not, surely some of you are. Um, and surely you are aware that there are some athletes out there who are known for their crazy antics uh, on the field, on the court, uh, off the field, off the court. Uh, people who just seem to find all kinds of trouble. They seem to rack up thousands of dollars in fines for the trouble they find themselves in. People like Alex Rodriguez or uh, Ndamukong Sue, Chad Johnson, uh, Draymond Green, these are athletes who are repeat offenders, who often get themselves in trouble, who break the rules while they're, again, on the court and on the field. Uh, and then they're forced, probably, I'm assuming that they're forced to apologize because they have some sort of press conference where they and give their little spiel and talk about how what they did was wrong. And then the next week they're out there doing something that is very similar. That's what makes me bring into question the legitimacy of their sorrow and their apology. Uh, because I'm sure that it's just their, their coach or the commissioner who's sending them out there and saying, no, you need to go and you need to make this right. And then again, their fruit proves otherwise not too long down the road. Well, in our text today, Paul is going to help us to see what true repentance actually looks like. What are the results of true repentance? What is the faith, the fruit of true repentance? And of all people, he points to the Corinthians as a good example of what true repentance looks like. Again, if you've been with us throughout our Corinthian series, especially in 1 Corinthians, that will be a little bit of a shock to you because the Corinthian church, they were known for uh, their shortcomings, right? They were known as the church that we don't necessarily want to emulate. But Paul points to the Corinthian church and he says, now repentance, now godly sorrow, that is what it looks like. You look to the Corinthian church. And we can go back into our, our mind from what we learned last week, even go back into the text. We can remember that back in verse 5, uh, Paul came into Macedonia and as he was coming into Macedonia, he had no rest from his flesh. He said, we had uh, afflictions without and fears within. People coming up after the apostle. He was entering into this territory that he was previously driven out of. 
he had people who were wanting to kill him. They were wanting to squelch the gospel message that he was preaching. And he mentioned, again, fears within. Seems like uncertainty about the, the things that he was doing, just inadequacy in himself, wondering if he should even have written this severe letter that he sent to the Corinthians, that he sent with his, his buddy, his pal, his co-worker in the faith, Titus. He had sent him into uh, this scary situation that he was unsure about. He was already there for his second missionary journey, and he said that that went poorly, that that was not really a successful visit, and now he had sent him there. So he's dealing with these fears without, or these conflicts without, these fears within, and yet God who comforts the depressed. That's kind of how Paul labeled himself as depressed. He said that God brought him comfort and joy in bringing Titus. So he was planning on meeting Titus in Troas, and Titus didn't show up, so he went on to Macedonia, and there he finally met with his buddy Titus, and he was brought comfort and joy and relief in seeing Titus. And not only in the fact that he saw him and he was comforted by his being there and his being safe, but Titus brought with him a good report of the Corinthians, that the Corinthians, they were being faithful, that they were uh, zealous for Paul, that they were made sorrowful even to the point of repentance, that they were mourning, that they were longing to be there with Paul. These were good things that Titus came and he brought this report to Paul, uh, easing the affliction that Paul found himself in, affliction on every side, without rest, conflicts without, fears within, and he found comfort and peace in having Titus being there, being safe, and having this good report of the Corinthians and what was going on there in Corinth. Well, the letter that he sent, while it made them sorrowful, this severe letter did make them sorrowful, he recognized that it made them sorrowful to the point of repentance. It wasn't just sorrow for the sake of sorrow, not just sadness for sadness sake, but it had an end and that end was repentance. And so clearly we see that sorrow isn't always a bad thing. We can have a, an understanding of sorrow as being something that we want to avoid, we want to stay away from, not something that we long for, right? But we see in our text that uh, there is a, a good positive use of sorrow of godly sorrow. It can often be a, a very great thing. It can be a very useful thing. It can teach us. It can grow us. It can guide us. It can shape us. It can make us more into who God wants us to be if we are uh, submitting to this godly sorrow. And in verse 10, Paul lists two different categories of sorrow. Remember, not all sorrow is equal. There is remorse and there is repentance. There is godly sorrow that comes from God that leads to repentance, and there is worldly sorrow that leads to death, and two different types of sorrow. And we would do well to examine our own hearts and our own attitude towards sin. Are we truly sorrowful toward our sin? Do we have a, a godly sorrow when it comes to the sin that we find in our lives, or are we just kind of apathetic about it? Are we sorry that it is... Uh, broadcast and, and made public and that people know about our sin. We do well to test the quality of our sorrow, to examine our hearts, our, our wicked, perverted hearts that are deceitful above all things, as Jeremiah 79 says. Uh, we can't just trust our, our feelings. Our feelings are deceitful, including the sorrow over our sin. And Paul, later on in this letter, towards the end in 13.5, he tells the Corinthians to test themselves to see whether or not they are in Christ, whether or not they have actually come to the point of salvation. He tells them to examine them, themselves. And this passage that we're going to be looking at today, starting in verse 11, this is about as close as we get to having a, a checklist of sorts for repentance. What does repentance actually look like? What does it look like to have true godly sorrow? Uh, this is a, a good place to go for a self-examination of our sorrow over our sin and whether or not it is legitimate. And so having warned his readers over these two different types of sorrow, Paul now launches into a description of godly sorrow here in verse 11. And so as we look at this godly sorrow, we need to recognize what it produces within us internally. He actually talks about it 
uh, in verse 11, he says, this godly sorrow has produced in you. So it should have uh, fruit within us. It should produce internally uh, these different lists of things. And uh, even before we get here, back in verses 9 and 10, we see that Paul is laying this, this uh, whole situation of, of repentance. He's laying it out sequentially. And so he talks about in verse 9 that this comes about from the will of God. And it is the will of God that leads to sorrow, to godly sorrow. And then it is godly sorrow that leads to repentance, a repentance that is without regret, a repentance that we don't need to be sorry for, we don't need to backtrack on. And then this repentance leads to salvation. So the will of God leads to godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance leads to salvation. We can see the, the sequence there, even in verses 9 and 10. Well, here we see that there are yet more results of this godly sorrow, more fruit from godly sorrow. It produces more than just salvation. Praise God that it produces salvation, that we can have salvation that God uses our, our understanding of our sin to bring about. However, that's not where it ends. There's even more that we can see here. We can see evidence of repentance. And we should see that godly sorrow indeed produces fruit. That if we are truly sor sorry over our sin, if we have this true understanding of our sin, it's not just going to stop there, but there's going to be fruit within our lives, fruit that we can look to, fruit that we can examine and see. It produces more than just salvation. And again, here in verse 11, Paul points out eight characteristics of godly sorrow, and he does so in just one verse, which is incredible. These are eight characteristics that Paul says should mark our life if we are truly sorrow, sorry and repentant over our sin. And the first one that he points out is earnestness at the beginning of verse 11. He says, for behold, what earnestness this very thing. And then he qualifies that thing. He says, this godly sorrow has produced in you, Corinthians. Again, talking to the Corinthians. However, you and I, we can apply this to our own lives as we seek to do as the Corinthians did and examine ourselves and, and test ourselves. He points out their earnestness. If you have the, the New King James, it might say diligence. So earnestness in the faith, your, your diligence. And Somewhat ironically, I think uh, that perhaps the most clear rendering of this passage comes from the King James, which points it out and, and renders his word as carefulness. So he commends them for their earnestness, their diligence, for their carefulness. And this is a word that isn't used too often in the New Testament, 12 times, so a dozen times we see this word in the New Testament. And yet five of those times we see just right here in this section, uh, perhaps even just on one page, if, you're, if the layout of your Bible is set up correctly, maybe not correctly, just right. Uh, from verse 11 of chapter 7 to verse 16 of chapter 8, we see this word used five times toward the Corinthians. Paul says, you guys are earnest, you're diligent, you are careful. And uh, he is hammering that in this next section. Well, one of the times that is outside of these five uses that Paul directs towards the Corinthians is in Mark chapter 6 when we read about Herodias and Herodias is dealing with John the Baptist. Remember, she wanted to kill John the Baptist. She hated John the Baptist for pointing out her infidelity, the fact that she was, uh, her incestuous relationship with Herod. And it says in Mark 6, 25, that Herodias came in a hurry or diligently, or earnestly, that's our word there, that she came in carefully to the king and asked him to give her the head of John the Baptist there on a platter. This was the kind of uh, attitude that she had as she was seeking the head of John the Baptist. She was earnest and, and hurrying, diligent and careful about the way that she approached the king. Remember that if you approach the king in the wrong way, you could have your own head cut off. So she came in in a hurried, diligent way. And so when we're looking at Paul's usage of this word in reference to the Corinthians, we can see that they had an unwillingness to delay in making this issue right. They were earnest, they were diligent, they were careful in making sure that their sin was handled correctly, that their sorrow was correctly placed, that it wasn't a, a false 
repentance, but their repentance was legitimate. Their repentance was substantive. There was actual weight to their repentance. And notice that not just here, but in the rest of these characteristics in verse 11, it's paired with this qualification. It says that this, no, behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow is producing you. So it says, what earnestness? And it goes on, it says, what vindication, what fear, what indignation, what longing? And so with this word what here, we should understand this as an exclamation, as an exaggeration of the characteristic that's already being mentioned. So it's not just earnestness, but it's extreme earnestness. It's hyper earnestness. It's um, not to be understood as a question, but rather as a, a superlative. It's taking this up to the next level, elevating these characteristics to say that there is extreme earnestness that they had, extreme uh, vindication and fear and, and so on. So when we see this word, what, we should understand it again in the superlative sense as exaggerating these different characteristics that Paul is saying exemplify the, the great godly sorrow that they have, the godly repentance that the Corinthians are demonstrating. And after mentioning this earnestness, he goes on to say, what vindication of yourselves. And so when speaking about this vindication, this vindication is speaking about their desire to restore their name, their desire to, uh, to clear the record, to make everybody aware of the fact that they have indeed repented. They're owning up to their sin. They're not trying to hide it. They're not trying to sweep it under the rug, uh, but they are trying to vindicate their poor reputation. And the word here for vindication is a familiar word for us, the word apologia, right? This word that comes from 1 Peter 3.15, talking about uh, setting apart or sanctifying Christ as Lord in our life and being ready to give a defense, uh, an answer for the hope that we have within us, to be able and willing to give an apology, uh, an apologia for the defense that's within us. That's the word that here is translated as vindication, and so they were, again, not seeking to justify their sin. The fact that they were embracing these false teachers over Paul, that these false teachers, these super apostles had come in and uh, they are spreading a, a false message, a, an anti-gospel, a pseudo-gospel, and they're giving a, a hearing to these teachers rather than to Paul. They were uh, upset by this fact. They were uh, giving a defense for this behavior that they had demonstrated beforehand. They were supporting their repentance with evidence. They're not just saying, oh, it's, it's okay. They're not trying to, to wipe that away. They're trying to own up to it. And they're trying to give evidence of the fact that uh, they had messed up, trying to acknowledge their sin so that they could seek restoration with, with God and with the church, with Paul. They are uh, seeking vindication. What vindication uh, is shown in their great godly sorrow? <clears throat> and then he goes on, he talks about indignation. So what earnestness, what vindication, what indignation. And again, this speaks to the fact that they are ashamed of their behavior. They're not downplaying it. They're not trying to minimize their, their behavior. And thinking back to Luke 18 and the the interaction between the, the tax collector and the Pharisee and how these guys would be portrayed in that situation. I think they would be much more uh, quick to identify with the tax collector who put his head down, he was beating his chest and he was saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. He wasn't there standing up and, and making sure that everybody saw that he was praying out to God and that he was self-righteous. They were identifying as this tax collector, as this publican who had an understanding of his sin. They had an understanding of the, the great indignation of their sin. What indignation was found in them? I want to go back even to the Old Testament and look at the book of Ezra with you. Remember that Ezra is the book that was written uh, documenting the restoration of the temple as Israel was coming out of captivity from the Babylonians. And Ezra in chapter 9 is where we'll pick up. As we're reading this, I want us to notice the description of the 
behavior, of the attitudes that we see in these verses. Talking about the, the attitude that Ezra had, the attitude of the people as they're seeking to be made right with God, even as they're establishing, reestablishing the building of the temple. So Ezra chapter 9, let's start in verse 1. It says, Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land, according to their ambitions, those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the land. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garments and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, the God of Israel, on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles, gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hand to the Lord my God. And I said, O my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquity has risen above our head, and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. And so we see here that they've committed this sin of uh, intermarriage with these different nations that are following after other gods. They are directly defying a commandment that God had given to them. And hopefully you, again, took notice of the different words that were describing their behavior and their attitude. Uh, we see words in this text like unfaithfulness, that Ezra tore his garments. He pulled out his hair and his beard, uh, symbolizing his great sorrow, his great grief. It says that he was appalled, that he trembled. It used the word humiliation. It said that he was ashamed, he was embarrassed. It spoke of his iniquities, of the guilt. And in verse 1 of chapter 10, we see that Ezra was praying and confessing and weeping and, and prostrating himself before the Lord. And then it goes on to talk about how all the peoples were weeping bitterly. So there's great sorrow going on at this point in Israel. Great understanding and uh, acceptance of their sin, realizing the great sin that they have committed. And this attitude, it doesn't just sit there. They don't just sit there and wallow in their grief with clothes torn and uh, being ashamed and humiliated. But this drives them to action. This compels them to actually go out and to act and to do something to uh, restore this relationship with God, to uh, make up for this sin that they had committed. And they go forward from here and they agree to put away their foreign wives and children and to send them back home. If we look down in Ezra 9 verse 10, we'll see the response of the people. It says, Now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the unclean, unclean, uncleanness of peoples of the land, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end with their iniquity, with their impurity. So now do not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or their prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. So again, they had an, an understanding of their sin. They had the correct attitude before God, and they were willing to take action. They were indignant toward their sin, just as Paul is commending the Corinthians for being indignant toward their sin. He says, what indignation you guys had toward your sin. You weren't just willing to sit there and uh, accept your sin, but instead you were indignant toward your sin. And Paul goes on in this list, and he mentions what fear the Corinthians had in their sin. And this might seem a little bit out of place. Well, fear, why would they have fear for their sin? Well, let me remind you of Matthew 10, verse 40, where Jesus says that he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. 
Remember that Paul was sent by the Lord Jesus, right? He was the apostle of the Lord Jesus. He was acting as an ambassador for Christ himself. And Jesus said, if you don't receive the one that I send, you don't receive me. And if you don't receive me, you don't receive the one who sent me. And the Corinthians were now coming to this understanding. We haven't received the apostle of the Lord Jesus. And whatever we haven't done for him, we haven't done uh, for whatever we haven't done to the least of these, including the Apostle Paul, we haven't done to the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, Paul certainly knew this principle, right? Having been told on the road to Damascus that he was persecuting Christ. Jesus saying, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, this same principle applies to the Corinthians who are now realizing their rejection of the Apostle Paul. And this fear is... Uh, a great thing because worldly sorrow wouldn't have this same concern. Worldly sorrow wouldn't have this understanding that what they are doing is a reflection of their attitude towards Christ himself, toward God the Father. And so Paul is commending them for their, their understanding, for their embracing of this fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. And the Corinthians are at this point where they fear their, the results, the, the outcome, the replications of uh, what they've done in uh, rejecting Paul himself. Well, this list continues on with uh, longing and zeal. What longing? What zeal? Longing speaks toward a vehement desire, an earnest desire. Uh, they were actually longing to be with Paul. And it's not uncommon for somebody who has sinned against another person to not want to see that person again, to actually avoid them. And that wasn't the mindset of the Corinthians whatsoever. They were longing for Paul. What longing they had to see the Apostle Paul. Uh, rather than having that mentality of trying to avoid somebody when there's this awkward situation, when we know we have sinned against them, when there's some kind of strife in between us, uh, when love is unsure, when a relationship is in question, we need to... Uh, we need to wrestle over that. Our spirit shouldn't be at rest, but rather we should be distressed, realizing that there is a divide within the body of Christ, that there is some kind of tension there. We shouldn't be okay with that tension, but we should address that head on and uh, realize that uh, we shouldn't allow the sun to go down on our anger. This is why we're directed not to let the sun go down on our anger because we shouldn't have this division within the body of Christ. We should instead seek to be at peace with all men, especially those who are of the household of the faith. We need to be united in Christ. So what zeal or what longing, what zeal or what concern the Corinthians have? Uh, John MacArthur, he talks about zeal as being a combination of two equally strong emotions, love and hate. He says that it produces a strong love that hates anything that would harm its object. The Lord Jesus Christ expressed both aspects of zeal when he cleansed the temple. It was his passionate love for his father's house that caused him to hate the terrible iniquity that desecrated it. So this combination of love and hate and Paul says, you guys have a, a love for me, which means that you have a hate for your sin. This word zeal is really quite beautiful to see the, the combination of those two aspects of love and hate and the, the attitude that we should have toward our sin and how that should drive us to love what is not our sin, how they had a zeal for Paul and they had a zeal against their sin. And then he talks about what avenging of wrong. ESV might say what punishment, or the NIV says what readiness to see justice done. Again, they weren't only seeking restoration. They definitely wanted to be restored to fellowship with Paul, to fellowship with the, the other churches, uh, with Christ himself, but they also were willing to seek restitution. So not just restoration, but restitution to make things right, even if that meant embracing the punishment that was owed to them. They were willing to, to own up to it. They were willing to face the consequences, to pay the price for this sin, for their poor attitude toward the Apostle Paul. And true repentance really does demand justice, even if it's to our own detriment. 
it demands justice. It will accept no less than true justice. I think we see this, again, back in the Gospels with Zacchaeus. Or remember the wee little man who climbed up in a sycamore tree? Uh, there's more to that story. He wasn't just out there climbing a tree, uh, but he was meeting Jesus. And Zacchaeus was a, a tax collector. Zacchaeus was a, a self-righteous sinner. And Jesus met with him, and he pointed out his need to him and the fact that he was this self-righteous sinner. And Zacchaeus had a, a change of heart. Zacchaeus was repentant. Zacchaeus had some fruit in his life. Uh, he was willing to avenge the wrong that he had produced. And in Luke 19, verse 8, it says that Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anybody of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. He is a son of Abraham, not by genealogy, but by faith. Just as Abraham had faith, he said that Zacchaeus had faith. He recognized this faith in Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus' faith was uh, not a, a dead faith, but it was a faith that worked. We're not saved by works plus faith, but we're saved by a faith that works, that produces, that has evidence and he was willing to go out and to make things right, to avenge the wrong. Even our, our broken world can see the, the benefits of this, of making things right, of avenging the wrong. Looking at any number of the 12-step programs that we have, go down the list and you get down to number nine. And that's where it talks about making amends, going back and identifying anybody that you've sinned against. And it's uh, part of that step. 12-step program to make amends with that person. So even the, the worldly sorrow that is seeking to uh, imitate the godly sorrow realizes that it needs to be a, a working sorrow. There needs to be some fruit that is produced within this repentance. And uh, the Corinthians, they didn't only realize the need for this punishment. They exemplified this punishment in their handling of this situation. Going back into chapter 2, we see how they handled this situation with the man who had caused sorrow to Paul, with this man who was causing division, very likely the, the spokesman of the super apostles. It says in 2 Corinthians 2.5, that if anyone has caused sorrow, this is Paul writing to them, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you. Now, Paul has to tell them, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which has inflict, was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So Paul's telling them, you guys, you've done enough. Just hold back. You don't need to punish him anymore. I know that you guys have uh, this desire. What avenging of wrong? However, that's sufficient. What we've already talked about is sufficient for this man. Well, Paul, back in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he kind of wraps all this up. He says, in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent of the matter. So after this long list of, again, seven, eight different things about what their, their godly sorrow has produced, what it has evidenced, he says that you have demonstrated innocence. Not that they have proclaimed their own innocence. Not that they have pronounced their innocence and uh, sought to avoid responsibility by just saying, oh, we're, we're innocent. But they have uh, worked out this, this innocence. It's the, the same word that Paul uses later on in chapter 11 when he's speaking of uh, a pure virgin. He's talking about being completely innocent, being holy, being spotless, being pure, uh, not having any guilt whatsoever to have cleanse their hands in a, a true sense, not in the sense that Pilate just said, oh, I'm going to wash my hands of this matter. But they have made sure that their hands are clean, that they have done what they need to uh, restore this relationship. They are keeping, what, keeping in line with what John the Baptist had said in, in bearing fruit, in keeping with repentance. They are demonstrating their innocence. 
And just as this was the result of the Corinthians' repentance, not just demonstrating innocence, but this whole list of things, uh, I think we can expect the same today, that we will have fruit in our lives, that we will have a, a changed life if we are truly uh, sorrow, if we have this godly sorrow in our lives that is leading to repentance, that leads to salvation. If godly sorrow is producing fruit in us internally, then there will be no need for external pressure, no need for somebody else to, to come along and pressure us to do what should be done internally. This should be natural for us. It shouldn't be forced or manipulated. When Jesus in John chapter 11 resurrected Lazarus, he didn't just go in and kind of prop him up and move his arms around and stand behind him and say, hey guys, right? He wasn't propping up Lazarus, right? He legitimately raised Lazarus from the dead. He had new life. He regenerated Lazarus. We don't need to prop up other people and expect them to, to act like Christians. Uh, we will have the, the Holy Spirit within us who is going to produce this fruit within us. Moving on into verse 12. Uh, we saw in verse 11 this godly sorrow and how it produces fruit internally. In verse 12, we see that godly sorrow has uh, uh, an intended purpose. We need to, to analyze the intended purpose that Paul had for bringing about this godly sorrow in the life of the Corinthians. Verse 12 says, So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. So there when he's speaking about the offender, again, I think he's referring back to that same man we just talked about in chapter 2, this man who was likely the, the spokesman for the, the false apostles. And when he's speaking about the man offended, he's speaking about himself. And he's saying that this wasn't his intended purpose. He wasn't writing for uh, vengeance towards the man who, the offending man. He wasn't writing to vindicate himself. Paul was more concerned with the spiritual walk of the Corinthians, with the Corinthians and their standing before God, than he was with his own vindication. In Paul's uh, writing of his severe letter and his second visit, which was an unpleasant visit, uh, he rebuked the Corinthians. He corrected the Corinthians. And this produced sorrow, which was uh, done with proper motives. It was done with godly motives. He wasn't just doing that to, to elevate himself, to puff himself up, or to tear down this other man. He was doing that for the sake of the Corinthians, to build them up, to edify them. This is exactly how we are to operate in the church. In, in anything and everything that we do in the church, we are to do it for the edification of the body of Christ, for the purpose and the benefit of the body of Christ, not for ourselves, not to tear down, but to build up. We see this in 1 Peter 4.10, talking about how we all have a, a spiritual gift. 1 Peter 4.10 says that as each one has received a special gift, we are to employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Our gifting is for the purpose of serving one another. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, we're given a, a list of these different offices. It says that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Now, catch this, the, the purpose. It says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. This is God's desire for his church, that we would build one another up, that we would equip one another, that we would be uh, edifying each other, not ourselves. And this is exactly, again, the, the intended purpose that Paul had in writing this severe letter and calling out the, the sin of the Corinthians and in calling them to repentance. And even as we uh, considered last week how correction and rebuke are necessary, despite the fact that they are often difficult, uh, we need to realize that we must engage in such endeavors with good motives. We have to check our motives when we're going to take this necessary step of calling out our brother or sister who is in sin. And so before calling out um, a, a brother, before calling a, a sister to repentance, we need to first 
check ourselves. We need to first examine our own motives in doing so. Are we doing this to somehow puff ourselves up, to somehow uh, make ourselves proud, to make ourselves look better? Are we doing this in some legalistic kind of way, holding them to a standard that we ourselves are unable to attain to or that isn't founded in Scripture? Are we doing this to kind of put somebody in their place to make sure that they're getting what comes to them? Or are we doing this with proper motives, with godly motives? In Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, you who are spiritual should restore uh, somebody who is caught in a sin. And you are to do so with gentleness and respect, watching out for yourself so that you too might not fall into sin. And I don't think that the Apostle Paul had in mind there the, the sin that he was calling out. If I'm calling somebody out for uh, gossiping or I'm calling somebody out for their uh, immorality, I don't think the, the concern is there that I might get caught up in that gossip or I might get caught up in that immorality. But I think it's more likely that his warning in Galatians 6.1 is that we might not get caught up in the, the sin of pride in elevating ourselves and in putting somebody else down. We need to check ourselves, check our own motives before, again, engaging in this necessary practice of calling out sin, of um, purifying the church. We need to make sure that we don't have a, a large plank sticking out of our eyes. We're going to inspect that speck of dust in somebody else's eye. Being sure, once again, that we're seeking uh, the the good of the other person, not our own good and not their harm. Along with that, I think it's important to notice that Paul, when he did correct the Corinthians, he did it to the Corinthians. He wrote this severe, harsh letter to the Corinthians. He didn't write to the Ephesians or to the Thessalonians saying, hey, those, those Corinthians over there, that's a, that's a really messed up church. Huh? And they really got some problems, don't they? Uh, no, he dealt with the Corinthians themselves. And I think that's a, another thing that we need to keep in mind as we are considering sin within the church and how we should handle it. We need to go to a person directly and handle that sin with them directly, just as is outlined for us in Matthew 18, without gossiping, without uh, bringing other people into it unnecessarily. And we see here in this verse, again in verse 12, it says that Paul wrote to them, not for his own sake, not for the sake of the offender, but that earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. Did you catch that? That he wanted to let the Corinthians know about their earnestness that they had for Paul. They had to be reminded that they had this earnestness. They had this diligence, this carefulness, this love for Paul. Paul knew them pretty well to be able to remind them of the fact that they were indeed earnest toward him, that they were diligent toward them. Uh, that's crazy to me, that they had to be reminded of that. They had to have this brought before them, this earnestness that was already within them, that they already had toward Paul. He just needed to remind them of that. And reminders are sometimes necessary. Even Jesus himself in Revelation 3, he's reminding the, the church at Ephesus not to forsake their first love, to, to come back to their first love. And that's what Paul is doing here for the church at, at Corinth. Well, Paul wraps up this section, verses 13 through 16, by talking not about the, the fruit of godly sorrow and what godly sorrow produces internally, but he even takes it another step farther, and he talks about how godly sorrow has uh, production within our lives externally. It produces fruit even externally as well. It says in verse 13, For this reason we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoice even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be true. His affection abounds all the more toward you, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how, he, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. So here again, we see that this godly sorrow continues to produce. It keeps on producing. Not only does godly sorrow produce repentance, which produces salvation. Not only does godly sorrow produce fruit within us internally, 
uh, working on our, our own personal growth. It goes beyond even our personal growth, and it affects the whole church universally. We see that Paul was comforted by the, the Corinthians, that Paul was comforted by how Titus was comforted by the Corinthians. So their obedience and their godly sorrow uh, made Titus just giddy with joy. And then Titus shows up, and his presence, his report makes uh, Paul giddy with joy. It's just a, a series of contagious joy amongst the Christian community that uh, affects the entire community of Christians. It's a, a, a joy that comes about from the obedience of seeing the church work and function as God has operated and designed the church to function. And when that happens, that is indeed a beautiful thing. And at the same time, the opposite is true as well. That when Christians fail or when Christians fall, it isn't just a, a thing that affects one individual Christian. It affects the church altogether. When a Christian falls either as an apostate revealing their condemnation that they, were, they went out from us because they were never of us, or if a, a disobedient believer falls that ends up returning in repentance to the Lord, even this can still hurt the church. Even as the Corinthians fell and returned and were repentant, even this can have a, a negative effect on the church. Whether or not we are being obedient or disobedient, it affects much more than just ourselves. Even this past week, I uh, learned of a, a former pastor who is living in unrepentant sin, and he's embracing this lifestyle. He's okay with it. He recognizes it as sin. He recognizes that he's unrepentant and he refuses to, to submit to the church. He refuses to, to do what the church is calling him to do. And this is saddening. This is devastating. This is heartbreaking. Uh, this is not the way that God has designed his church. And once again, the, the way that we act, our, our disobedience or our obedience has a, a greater effect beyond just ourselves. Yeah, there must be a, a private aspect to our Christianity. We must, by definition, have a personal relationship with Christ, but it doesn't just stop there. Uh, we are a body, and as a body, we rejoice together. We weep together. When one part of the body hurts, we're, we're all hurting. When one part of the body uh, is, is doing well and rejoicing, we all rejoice together. And Paul wraps up not just this chapter, but this whole section. The first seven chapters of Second Corinthians are kind of a, a section. We're going to move on next week into chapter 8. But he wraps up this whole section with this great verse in verse 16. He says, I rejoice in everything. I have confidence in you. That is a, a beautiful verse, a beautiful reality that I'm sure the, the Corinthians just latched onto and really took a, a whole lot of confidence in the fact that Paul has confidence in them. Remember, this is not just any church. This is the Corinthian church, right? The rough and rugged Corinthians who are known abroad for their sin. Um, they are famous for their sin. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, Apollos said he didn't even want to go there. Paul said, I, I talked to Apollos about going there, and he said, nope, I'm not going to do that because it's the Corinthians. And now Paul here is saying that he has great love for them. He has great confidence in them. A confidence that is stemming from the fruit that is produced in them from their godly sorrow. Paul is saying, that church, I know they have their problems. I know they have their issues, but I have confidence in them because look at their great indignation. What uh, indignation, what fear, what... Uh, earnestness they have, what vindication, what longing, what zeal. He has great confidence in this church. And we would do well to remember that, again, not all sorrow is equal, as verse 10 points out. There are two categories of sorrow, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. We should examine our own lives, or the sin in our own lives, the quality of our sorrow. Is it true repentance that is from God? Is it a sorrow that produces fruit within us internally? Is it a sorrow that produces fruit within the church? And if we don't see fruit in our lives, this truly should 
bring us to a point of concern, where we were concerned for our salvation. We were concerned for our position in Christ because godly sorrow produces repentance, produces this, these, this list that we see in, in verse 11. This is a great test for our own sorrow. And yet, if we do see fruit in our lives, it should be cause for comfort in our lives, for comfort and joy, realizing that there is a, a God who loves us, who is working within us, that we are his children, we are legitimately his children, uh, and he is chastening us and making us more and more like him. So are we concerned or are we comforted when examining our life? Do we love God more than we love our own sin? Do we truly have a, a longing for God? Are we, uh, is Jesus indeed precious to us? These are good questions for us to ask as we examine our lives and the, the quality of our sorrow. If we're in Christ, I firmly believe that the Lord will grant to us godly sorrow that leads both to salvation initially and godly sorrow that as we, we continue to sin as sinners, uh, we're going to hate our sin. We're going to be drawn closer to him. He will convict those who are truly his children. And we do well, even now, ahead of time, to have the same attitude in us that was in Christ Jesus, that we would be seeking to cultivate a, a teachable attitude, a humble attitude that's willing to be corrected, willing to be challenged, that we may be quick to respond as the Corinthians did, again in verse 11, that we would be known for our endurance, for our vindication, for our, our fear, longing, zeal, that we would have a correct attitude towards sin, allowing the Holy Spirit to produce in us fruit that affects us both internally in the way that we act and the way that we live, and fruit that affects the church more broadly, that we would be comforted and we would have joy in the Lord and what He's done for us because of our understanding of what he has saved us from. He has saved us from our sin, from our sin that is disgusting and grotesque. We shouldn't have a, a longing for that sin whatsoever, but our longing should be to be like Christ, that we would be new and uh, rejuvenated, that we would have a new life in Christ and that we would live a life that represents who Christ is and who we are in him. Let's pray. God, I do pray that you would give us that understanding that our sin is disgusting, that we wouldn't want to be associated with it whatsoever. We would want to uh, be drawn closer to you. We would have a, a disgust for our sin both before we come to you and our sin especially after we come to you. We wouldn't want to be associated with that in any way, that we would have sorrowful hearts that are repentant, that are willing to be corrected and challenged by by your church, that we would take that correction well, that we wouldn't be angry, but that we would re receive that correction and uh, that we would have a, a love for you, for your people, and we would want to be made more and more like you, even as the day approaches. God, we thank you that you are indeed coming again, that you haven't left us as orphans, that you have given us your Holy Spirit, and that you are preparing a place for us even now. God, help us to live our lives in light of that reality, that we wouldn't look at salvation, at, at eternal life, as something that begins at death, but we would look at that as something that we have currently, that we have life in you because of what you've done for us. We love you and praise you. Amen.